Wish we were uh, having you on talking about a more joyous occasion, but I think your perspective is very much needed for something like this. Well, Tommy will make it a joyous occasion because he would want us still talking about him. <laughs> that's, that's a great point. That is a great, great point. When you think about the history of the Dodgers franchise, three people immediately come to mind. Jackie Robinson, Vin Scully, and Tommy Lasorda. We lost Lasorda Thursday night, January 7th, 2021. At the time of his death, he was the oldest living Hall of Famer at the age of 93. Over his 20-year run as Dodgers manager, he won two World Series titles, four National League pennants, and eight division titles but he meant so much more to baseball than just his on-field accomplishments. To shed some much-needed perspective on this, my next guest is Dodgers team historian Mark Langell. Mark, thank you for joining me for a meeting on the mound. Jake, it's a pleasure to be with you. Yes, and as you said before we started recording, Tommy would want us to continue to talk about him, and so this is not so much a somber podcast as it is a celebration of his life and accomplishments. Absolutely. I think when I got the first call that Tommy had passed, there was about maybe 10 or 15 minutes of, oh my gosh, this indestructible, this larger than life person uh, actually passed. But as the day went on and the stories went on and the memories and, and just to be able to see on social media, how many public people pass and everybody has a Tommy story. It's not something from what, what they watched on TV. I met Tommy here. I met Tommy there. You know, I was, it didn't matter. And that was the beauty. Everybody felt that they had had a chance to meet Tommy in his 93 years. And everybody just wanted to compare notes as far as here's when I met Tommy. Here's when I met Tommy. And it was just really a, a celebration the whole day of an, just a truly incredible life. I don't have the numbers on this, but I'm pretty sure that 90% of those meetings that people ran into Tommy was at a restaurant. Is that, is that correct? I would think so. It, ha <laughs> it, it, it has to be. And the other thing too, he worked that ballpark. You know, when you consider that he stopped managing in 1996, uh, just think of the podium. Once he got that job in 1976, he never let it go. He managed for 20 years, but for the rest of his life, he was a manager. And that, and the beauty about Tommy once he got that Olympic gold medal, he pivoted because it wasn't just Dodgers, Dodgers, Dodgers. Right. It was something that he did for his country, but also he would take the lessons from the baseball field and apply it to life. And so that way, if it was a softball player, if it was a business person, if it was a school teacher, if it was a little kid on the playground, he could motivate. It wasn't just, here's how to play baseball. It was, here's how to believe in yourself. Here's how to, here's how to really reach for the stars and, and don't let your uh, don't let your apprehensions pull you back because this is a number three pitcher on the Norris town high school baseball team. And, and that's great, but they only use two pitchers <laughs> and somehow the guy that never played in high school ended up in the major leagues and he never looked back. I think that's one of the great things about the game of baseball and why if you love baseball, you tend to also love life because 
you go through so many hardships in life as you do in baseball. And for Tommy and his playing career, the fact that he wasn't a successful player, a successful pitcher, didn't deter his love for baseball or the Dodgers. You're exactly right. When he signs in 1945 with the Phillies, I don't think he's aware it's a minor league contract. He probably thought he was going straight to the Phillies. <laughs> and then just imagine he's drafted by the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1948. He gets to Vero Beach and there's 600 other minor league players. And he's the lowest of the low. And, and he's not really that touted, but somebody must have said, hey, left-handed pitcher with heart. And just somehow he makes the jump from single A to triple A. And it was kind of like he hit the ceiling at AAA. He was always trying. He was always trying. Uh, but that was, the, that was the key. He made it to the majors, even though an 0-4 record, hey, that's still an accomplishment for anybody to make the majors. And you look at Tommy playing on that 1955 World Championship team, that's how good he was. The very fact the 125 wins at AAA Montreal, he was a great athlete. It, it just didn't translate to the major leagues. Uh, but that's the amazing thing. He just he just wouldn't take no for an answer. Uh, and he was always pushing whatever he did. He didn't want to be content. What do you think it was, Mark, about the Dodgers that he fell in love with? It, it, it's an incredible story because he obviously didn't have an illustrious career like we just mentioned, but he wanted to remain with the Dodgers in any capacity, whether it was a scout, front office, but he knew he wanted to be, eventually he wanted to be the manager of the Dodgers. But what was it about this franchise that really kind of drew him in? Well, look how famous the franchise is. You have a bi-coastal history. They've been around since 1890. And not only Jackie Robinson, but you had the Boys of Summer, you had all the other famous events at Dodger Stadium, uh, but Tommy grew up on the East Coast, and so he was actually a Yankees fan, and he would dream about Yankee Stadium, but I think he realized with the enormity of the Dodger organization and the popularity and people like Walter O'Malley and Vin Scully and Duke Snyder and Sandy Colfax and Don Drysdale, that's royalty right there, and so Tommy is biding this time uh, as a scout, he doesn't want to be a scout, but he decides he's going to be a competitive scout. And this is before the days of the draft. So anybody could sign anybody. It was like the wild, wild west. And Tommy would take, you know, uh, the power of persuasion and go into people's homes and convince them to sign. Then as a minor league manager, he doesn't want to manage and they convince him. They say, you can do it. So the competitive nature kicks in. All, all along the way, he adapts. And I think that's the key. And then he has to bide his time under Alston because I don't think he really felt that Alston liked him. And it may not have been a personality, but because Alston didn't play with sort of with the 55 and 50 with the 54 and 55 team, you know, he takes that personally. He's still mad at his high school coach for not playing him. So I don't think it was sort I don't think it was Alston the person that he didn't like. It was just Alston the manager that he didn't like because you never played me. You never played me. <laughs> You know, every, everything like that. Um, but he bides his time under Alston, and then all bets are off. Just imagine 1977. Just Roz Wyman, the local city councilwoman who brought the team here in the late 1950s, said the people two most responsible are associated with the Dodger franchise, Vin Scully and Tommy Lasorda. And if you think about it, Vinny had a 20-year head start, mm -hmm. 1958 uh, through 1976. But I would, I would bet, at least by 77, maybe the middle of 78, they're neck and neck. Because what does Tommy do? 
normally you take the managerial post, you say you hope you do well. Not Tommy. He announces it's the end of the Cincinnati Reds dynasty. Yep. Even though they had won the World Series in 75 and 76, uh, he announces that he uh, physically, he bleeds Dodger blue. So right off the bat, uh, you know, you've already got the hyperbole. Uh, but then, oh, by the way, Frank Sinatra sings the national anthem on opening day and suddenly it's on. And, you know, with all the bluster and everything like that, people forget when he got to the World Series his first two years, He's the first National League manager since Gabby Street of the 1930 and 31 St. Louis Cardinals to do that. So, yeah, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors, but what he did hadn't been done in a very, very long time. He also did something that I thought was just so courageous after the first playoff game in 1977, because back then there's no division series. It's just league championship series, best of five. They lose that first game against Philadelphia at home. Suddenly there's pressure. This dream season, the 30 home run quartet, it could go down the tubes. They need a motivational speaker. Tommy has the guts to bring in comedian Don Rickles to rip the team for 20 minutes before this playoff game. Now that takes a lot of guts. He's not doing that for the cameras. He's doing it strategically because he thinks the team's uptight. So that's the thing. There was always a method to his madness. Yes, uh, he could be very colorful and very... Uh, very sociable in front of the cameras, but he was crazy like a fox when it came to motivating his players. I, I honestly don't think he needed Don Rickles. I think he could have done that himself. <laughs> but you mentioned Vince Scully. You said had a you know a twenty year head start in terms of um, integrating himself in the you know the legends of of Dodgers baseball, and I think that he is the last living just you know bigger than bigger than God himself type of legend where you look at some of those folks like Tommy Lasorda. I put, I put my grandfather in that same echelon of people that you never really consider or think about that they're, that they're going to die someday. You think that that person could live forever. But I think what Tommy Lasorda did for the Dodgers, Vin Scully could never do, which is win world series titles. And that to me is something as a fan you you gravitate towards because while Vinny is great, he can only tell you what's going on on the field. He can't play, he can't manage on the field. And when you bring those championships to LA and and the one you know the one that happened in Brooklyn, that's when you really endear yourself to to the fan base. And you mentioned Walter Alston. I want to talk a little bit about that because when you take a look at all of the World Series titles that the Dodgers have won, seven of them, six of those were led by two managers, Walter Alston and Tommy Lasorda. If you think about in today's baseball, that's a a rarity to, to have only two managers oversee that, you know, long of a period of time for six championships. Since uh, Tommy Lasorda retired from managing in 1996, the Dodgers have had eight different managers over a 25-year span. That's more like it. That's more what we're used to nowadays. But what do you think, because Alston and Lasorda were so different, what do you think made them so successful as managers? I think if you look at that longevity, and it's a great point that you make, Jake, from Walter Alston to Tommy Lasorda, that spans 1954 to 19, seven, uh, 1996, right. and that is something like 210 managerial changes. And I think when you look at it, the O'Malley ownership really caused that to happen because 
uh, Chuck Dressen, who had won pennants in 1952 and 53, takes advice from his wife after the 53 season and says, hey, you got to get a multi-year deal. You're, 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 you're big time. <laughs> you, you, you can't do a one-year deal. So he, he you know, passes that information along to Mr. O'Malley. And Walter's like, basically, well, we're going to miss you. And he, he plucks Alston. And basically, it's setting the tone because you know O'Malley has just taken over after the 1950 season. So he knew that, that Casey Stengo, Burley Grimes, a couple of those other managers that had multi-year deals and were fired in the middle of a multi-year deal. And he decides Alston's going to go, it'll be the policy one year, one year, one year. That's fine with Alston. He does that through 76. The other key thing about Alston, there was an article uh, about 1969 in Baseball Digest, and Walter O'Malley was asked about Walter Alston, and he says, he doesn't irritate me. Do you understand how important that is? And so that was a good relationship. But don't forget, Walter O'Malley from 1950 through 1970 and then he's chairman of the board through 79 at, at the time of his passing. He's basically running baseball. Free agency doesn't occur until 76. You know, he's dominating the, the TV committee and everything like that. Uh, so he's a big, big force. You don't need Alston to make a lot of noise because behind the scenes, you've got, uh, you've got Walter O'Malley not only orchestrating or helping to, to legislate Major League Baseball, but he... he he moves the team to the West Coast and coordinates that with the Giants and also builds Dodger Stadium. Now look at the personality of Peter O'Malley. Very thoughtful, very quiet. And so that's opposite, right? So you don't necessarily need another Alston to go with a quiet, uh, you don't need a quiet manager to su succeed a quiet manager. Obviously, Tommy fit the bill as far as not being a quiet manager. But I think the other key is because he had grown up in the Dodger system, because so many players on that first 77 team had played for him in the minors. It was just natural. And if you think about it, Tommy may have gone to Montreal. Tommy may have gone to another team in that interim in 75 or 76. Tommy was patient. Tommy wanted the dream job of the Dodgers. And so my guess is he probably turned down something maybe 75, 76, knowing that this might be around the corner. And let's say he doesn't get the job in 77. He's always free to find another, uh, find another position. But, you know, he's patient. He's biding his time. He knows they're not going to force out Alston after four championships. So finally, uh, September 29, 1976, he's named the Dodger manager. And boom, right off the bat, are you worried about replacing somebody who's been here for 23 years? What does Tommy say? I'm worried about the guy who's going to replace me. <laughs> so right off the bat that day, okay, it's on. And it was Bill Russell, right? That ended up. Yeah. Russell, Russell replaces him when Tommy has the, the mild heart attack in the middle of the 1996 season. Now I know I'm not going to ask you to comment on this. I, I can say this a little more freely because you, you work for the team, but I've always thought this and, and, and you can, you know, step in if you, if you'd like to comment, you can, but after Tommy Lasorda, the Dodgers, like I mentioned, had eight different managers, but all of them pretty sleepy, like pretty mild-mannered, kind of laid back, the Don Mattingly's of the world, Jim Tracy, Grady Little. And Dave Roberts kind of has that in-between where he's kind of quiet sometimes, but he's also really fiery and passionate. And I always thought growing up a Dodgers fan, because, you know, I, I was born in 1991, so I was around when Tommy was towards the end of his Dodgers managerial career, but I don't really remember it. 
You know, the first manager I really remember was Davey Johnson. But I always thought that all the managers we kept getting, I kept thinking like, man, like Joe Torre's a great manager, but he just doesn't have that passion, that sort of get in your face. We need someone like that to rile these guys up. And I sort of felt like Dave Roberts was that in between. And like when he would get fired up and passionate, I was I was behind him in that sense. Um, I felt that he need the the Dodgers needed that. Did did you kind of? I mean, obviously, there's no there's no other Tommy Lasorda out there, and 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 comparing him to and comparing Dave Roberts to him is not really fair. But like, did did you feel that over the course of the of the in between years where it was like you know we just couldn't find the right match? Here's the thing about that, Jake, and it's interesting that you say that because when you look at Tommy's 20 years and you talk about the passion sometimes if you don't have the horses that passion's not going to do you any good <laughs> and i can think of look at look at 1980 1979 um you'll have to google it being that you're born in 1991 but you know the magic runs out when some guys get hurt but the key is look at 1992 you're one years old and the team tommy lasorda mr passion mr i love everything and and, and fire and brimstone the team loses 99 games and finishes in last place for the first time since 1905. Same manager. And so I really think sometimes it's the horses. And the other thing too, when you look at some of the other managers too, it's a whole, it, it takes a village in terms of an organization, yeah. a general manager and everything like that. So you never know behind the scenes as far as who's pushing what button, who's got the support of who. And, you know, you can yell all you want. It, it makes a lot of, it, you know, you're, you're a very smart manager if, if uh, you can put Clayton Kershaw on the mound uh, or you can have Gagne come on out of the bullpen, you know, at certain times. You can look at the, the glory days and you look at Walter Alston. What a great manager for four championships and everything like that. And you can say, okay, well, they win the pennant in 63 and they win the World Series. They win the pennant and win the World Series in, in 65 and go back to the fall classic in 66. 67 and 68, it's like, you know, seventh and eighth place, they fall off the map. What happened? Colfax retired. Tommy Davis gets traded. Maury Wills gets traded. And so I think everything goes in cycles. And at that point, they're not getting rid of Alston. They're keeping Alston. And by 73, they're rebuilding and they're not necessarily making short-term trades. Uh, Campanis is starting to trade for pitching from other, other organizations. They get Andy Messersmith from the Angels. They get Tommy John from the White Sox. They get Bert Hooten from the Cubs. Suddenly they're contenders again. And so it's the same manager in 74 when they win. And it's kind of like Sparky Anderson. You win the championship in 75 and 76. Lasorda comes along, wins the two pennants. And then suddenly Mr. Sparky, Mr. Hall of Fame manager, gets canned by the Reds uh, after 79. He actually managed the Major League All-Star team in 79. And when he got back, they said, hey, great job. By the way, you're fired. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I see your point in, you know, if you don't if you don't have the players on the team, it's hard, it's hard to win with just passion. But you also look like a year at, at 1988 where not, you know, they weren't supposed to win. I mean, the Mets were supposed to trounce them. And the Oakland A's were supposed to, you know, murder these guys. And they end up, 
getting through. And I think it, it t- took a manager like Tommy Lasorda. It also took a player like Kirk Gibson. And the one parallel that I draw between 88 and 2020 is you had Kirk Gibson coming into the into the locker room in spring training and being and seeing all these guys goofing around and saying like, guys, like, let's get it together. That You know, stop horsing around. We got to, you know, we got to focus and we got, you know, we, we, we got to play to win. Like we're not playing to have fun. And similarly in 2020, you got a guy like Mookie Betts come into the locker room. Now, I, I don't think that they were horse and round, but he essentially came in there and said, let's play every single day like it's the seventh game of the World Series. And you have to have that attitude, I think, in, in order to win. And I think that was one of the big reasons why they were able to get over that 32-year drought in 2020. Um, I want to talk to you about something because you mentioned in this article that you wrote for a Dodgers Insider that you were Tommy's interim personal assistant and driver in 2007. That must have been crazy. And just kind of tell me what, how did that come about and what was that like? Well, just imagine I'm at home in South Pasadena thinking that I'm not going to be in spring training for a few weeks because normally I would just go down and interview players and write it up for publications. And I get a phone call about maybe six o'clock at night and it sounds like a James Bond movie. Uh, Can you be in Florida tomorrow? (laughs) And, and, and you're the only person that can do this. And basically, Tommy's assistant had taken a leave of absence. And so Tommy's going to go to spring training, and Tommy always has an assistant with him. And so I was going to be that person. And Colin Gunderson, uh, the very talented assistant who later wrote, wrote a book about his experiences with Tommy, I'd recommend for any Dodger fan, he looked like he was always on a giant hamster wheel going 26 hours a day. And so I knew what that would be. And so I said, look, I'll do it on one condition that I'm not doing anything for publicity because if you're going to be working with Tommy, it's got to be 24 seven. And I tell people it was the most amazing uh, 28 days, 14 hours and 37 seconds of my life because (laughs) I got such an appreciation for somebody that I thought I knew because I'd first gotten his Tommy's autograph. He's a third base coach. You know, I'm eight years old and 74 in the pavilion. Okay, who's this guy? And then, you know, you read and I become a, a, a Pasadena Star News reporter, but that it's a total different relationship when suddenly you're going behind the scenes. And the energy that that man had at age 79, it, it just blew me away mm. in terms of just not only uh, what the crowds meant to him, but what all the things that he did privately that nobody knew about. He'd call strangers uh, to encourage, uh, answer mail, uh, things that weren't relating to baseball, but just that he knew because of that pulpit of being Tommy Lasorda, he actually felt that as a responsibility and a challenge. And, And it's the same thing that he said as far as for a prospect not wanting to waste their talent. He had the ability every single day, if he met people to do good, and he never lost that sight as far as I can brighten somebody's day. I can give somebody a call. I can encourage somebody. And it was amazing uh, just to see behind the scenes what it was like. And I got to tell you, the the breakthrough for me, I realized I was going to have nine meals a day because (laughs) this is absolutely true because at Dodger Town, breakfast seven to 10. So Tommy'd get there at seven. His table was right by the front of the line. So he'd pull people out and say, hey, come on, sit down. And you know, it, it, it was amazing to see, but one time we're sitting there and he says, gosh, I'm trying to think of this one guy that I helped through the window and beat curfew. I can't think of him. 
And I said, well, who do you think it, uh, give me a clue. You wouldn't know. You wouldn't know. He played in the minor leagues. And I said, well, try me. And he said, well, he coached at West Point. No good. He played football at Duke. He was a punter. Nothing. Then he said the magic words. He played in the Rose Bowl. And because of my background as a, as a Pasadena Star News reporter, I knew my Rose Bowl history. Knew Duke had only been in the Rose Bowl once in 1939. Very famous game in which they have a 3-0 lead and SC comes back in the final minute. And the only player I knew, I thought, was the punter that put SC in bad field position all day. And I said, are you talking about Eric Tipton? And he stared at me and he's like, how did you know? How the hell would you know that? How? And then and then he went from that to suddenly, he knows everything. He knows everything. And this is before Google. And so suddenly, you know, Tommy'd be showing me old photos. Who's this? Who's that? He knows Eric Tipton. And everybody else is going, who the hell's Eric Tipton? But I'm glad his new assistant is making him happy. <laughs> well, you just confirmed why I brought you on the podcast, Mark. You are a walking encyclopedia when it comes to pretty much anything, but specifically with the Dodgers. Um, that's a great story. I'm wondering, are there any other stories that maybe people haven't heard of or heard about uh, Tommy Lasorda that you like to share or, or that you remember personally um, that, that you'd want to share with us? I think the thing that comes to mind, and I, I made this the lead, uh, I, I wrote a tribute to him. Uh, he gave my nephew, my seven-year-old nephew, a facts of life speech in his office. And everybody's always, wow, a facts of life speech to a, to a seven-year-old. And, and he says, Michael, you look like a fine young man. I want you to always remember one thing. And I, I don't know what he's going to tell him. He said, always stand in the middle of the photo so they can't crop you out. <laughs> and, and my nephew just gives me this blank look and I mouth to him, I'll tell you later. Right. And, and, and if you think about it, that was Tommy's philosophy because he was ignored. He, he, he fought for everything as the, as the youngest kid in the family in Norristown, Pennsylvania, and everybody laughed at him when he wanted to be in the majors and and he always wanted to be in the picture. And it was the same thing as far as if I'm gonna manage, I'm gonna win. If I'm gonna play, I'm gonna to get to the majors. Oh yeah, you mentioned the 1988 Dodgers. Oh, we can't beat the Mets. Oh, we lost 10 out of 11 times during the regular season. Watch this. But, it, but he still had to have that strength to deal with a personality like Gibson because even though Gibson was upset and even though because of the eye black incident in spring training, you know, he wanted to, Tommy still had to be in charge. So you never had a, a situation where a player took over the team. He had to work in unison with the big personalities. And that was the key. And, and just like the year 2000, everybody's looking at him going to the Olympics like it's ceremonial. Oh, isn't this nice? Four years after he retired, uh, Tommy gets to babysit the team. And isn't that, isn't that nice? There's no way they'll win because Cuba always wins. And Tommy doesn't even know these players. And except for Pat Borders, they're a bunch of minor leaguers. So right. they, they don't have a chance. And, and what happens? You know, he comes back like MacArthur, you know, in terms of just, uh, you know, nobody said he could do it. And the great thing about that wasn't just the gold medal victory, but it was how he did it. Because in the seventh inning, uh, Milwaukee pitcher Ben Sheets, he's a, a top prospect, is on a pitch count. 
And so he's supposed to yank Ben Sheets around the seventh inning and Bob Watson of the major leagues is yelling at Tommy from the stands, you know, Hey, Tommy, Tommy, you know, he's trying to give notes and everything. Tommy doesn't turn around. He just yells, I can't hear you, Bo. I can't hear you. And 20 minutes later, the United States has the gold medal. And so that's, that's the beauty in the moment. It's like, you know what, we're going all the way with Ben Sheets and, and there's no way we're doing a pitch count. We're not, uh, there's no committee. I'm in charge. You can't get me. And uh, look, at, look at the results. You have to have that mentality in order to win. I mean, it reminds me so much of, of the mentality of Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant, where as soon as you start to doubt them, or as soon as you know someone comes and criticizes you or, or taunts them, it's like that's the fuel that they need to overcome. So when you tell Tommy Lasorda that you're not supposed to beat the Mets, you're not supposed to beat the A's, you got... Uh, Bob Costas, you know, in the pregame in 1988, basically bashing the team and saying, you know, th- these guys, you know, should, you know, th- this lineup is, shouldn't be on the field. You know, they didn't have Kirk Gibson in the lineup and like they have no business being there. And he uses that as motivation to win. And it's just, it must make the winning so much sweeter. It's not just the winning, it's everything else. Nobody else can park their car in front of a hotel you know, like some Elvis movie in the 1960s. Normally you got to valet it. He'll plop it right in front of the hotel. And the valets are like, hi, Tommy. Hi, Tommy. You know, it, it, that was the type of thing in all walks of life he would love. One of his favorite things was whether it was going international or going to the White House, everybody else had to show ID, had to, you know, just prove who they were, this and that. Tommy just sat there with his hands in his pockets. And they're going, how come, how come you don't have to do this? And he, all he would do is just smile and put his finger right, right below his chin pointing and saying, that's my ID. And that's what he loved. You know, it's like when he, when, when he wanted to sign a ball player from South Pasadena named Tommy Hutton, who had been offered uh, $10,000 by the Red Sox. And his parents told Tommy the offer and Tommy offered 8,000. Like, maybe you didn't hear, we offered you 10,000. And Tommy said, I heard you, but it's gonna cost you 2,000. To, see, to have the privilege of watching your son play just down the road in this most beautiful stadium. And he signed him for 8,000. And Tommy later said, anybody can sign him for 10. I wanted to see if I could get him for eight. Right. <laughs> so it was all just a game. Amazing. Oh, man. Um, the, the last thing I want to ask you about, because as, to, as great as, of an ambassador to the game as Tommy was, it wasn't just, it wasn't just about the Dodgers. It was about, you know, what he represents in terms of, of baseball and, and what he means to the sport. And, um, to have, to have lost someone like that is just, um, it, it's, it's sad, but it's also a, a time for us to, to, for you and I to speak and for everyone to kind of share their stories about Tommy. But one of the things that I found most fascinating about him was, he was very prophetic. Like he, he, om- he knew things were going to happen. He knew that if he set his mind to it, things were going to happen. And you wrote about it in your, in your piece on uh, Dodgers insider, where he told his, you know, then, you know, uh, a, I guess she was even a girlfriend, acquaintance, uh, you know, she wasn't yet, you know, his wife, but Joe, the, the woman that he would marry in 1949, he told her that he was going to marry her. And then they had a 70-year marriage. They just celebrated their 70th anniversary. And then you also wrote about in the 1963 World Series when he was a scout. He told her, I'm going to become the manager of the Dodgers. And then he ends up becoming the manager of the Dodgers. 
how does that ha- how does he know that that's going to happen? I mean, he's just so confident. Well, I think it was just the supreme confidence because that stuff is look at him as a kid. He's going around house to house trying to earn money, knocking on the door saying, "Hey, I noticed there's a dead cat under your house. You know, for for a nickel or a dime, I'll go under and, and get it." And then he'd knock on the same door the next week and they'd figure out he was the one that put the cat there in the first place. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, I mean, and you mentioned about the, the, the first date, you know, to get the first date, Tommy, Tommy spotted uh, Joanne Miller in, in Greenville in the stands. So he decides he knows the ticket taker uh, from the movie theater. Of course, Tommy knew the ticket taker from the movie theater. That meant Tommy didn't have to pay to get in the movie right. theater. And that was the friend, leave behind your sweater. Give me enough time to come back. And so he asked her about maybe 12 times and she said no. And he said, look, I know I'm Clark Gable, but I'm not that bad. And so when they actually go to lunch, he says just how, how pretty she is and how wonderful, uh, you know, how wonderful she is. And he made that prediction and it, and it obviously comes true. And that was the thing about the Tommy just love, absolutely loved to challenge. And it, it, that's the amazing thing. Just don't tell Tommy, uh, especially too with players, uh, he really, you know, when you look at there's competition in terms of, I don't think this player is going to be any good. And you think about Bobby Valentine, who spent 50 years in pro ball in the minors. Nobody thought Bobby Valentine could be a shortstop. And the rest of the team was was mad at Tommy because you're trying to make a shortstop out of Bobby Valentine. He'd never played there before. And one day before the game, Tommy held a meeting and said, everybody get a pad of paper and a pencil. And so they did. And they said, line up. Line up for what? To get Bobby Valentine's autograph, because one day he's going to be in the majors. And Valentine said he could have just crawled into a hole, yeah. but it was just showing how confident he was. And there, and, and then Bobby Valentine, one of his great moments was when one of the one of the doubters uh, from that minor league team uh, called him for tickets. <laughs> hey, this is so and so. Do you remember me? And you know, Lasorda got a big kick when Valentine said, hey, guess what? So-and-so just asked for tickets. Amazing. And they went back to those early days in the minors. Uh, but that was the key as far as whether it was a Buckner, whether it was a Garvey, uh, whether it was a Say. I talked to Ron Say the other day. He was reminiscing, just saying how important uh, to have somebody in your corner as a minor leaguer uh, to believe in you. Um, and, and that was really the key. It wasn't just the bluster. It was just the confidence uh, to say, hey, yes, you can do this. And you look at Steve Garvey, Mr. Dodger and everything like that. Tommy saved Steve Garvey's Dodger career because he was going to be traded uh, to the Philadelphia Phillies for Willie Montanez. And Tommy is telling Al Campanis, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And, and they were, you know, Tommy had to talk chief out of it. And so, you know, behind the scenes, if he believed in you, uh, he'd go to bat for you. Yeah. And Mike Piazza also comes to mind uh, when you yeah. think of Tommy Lasorda uh, and and discovering him and how, how I mean, just so late in the draft that they found him and he ends up becoming a Hall of Fame catcher. Unfortunately, I that was one of the, the things that I never, I never could wrap my head around as to why we weren't able to hold on to Mike Piazza. Him, Pedro Martinez, and Adrian Beltre. Those three... Like, I, I'll never get over that, but I digress. Um, <laughs> so finally, Mark, um, the things that I've been seeing in in terms of tributes to Tommy, there's been so many videos that have been 
that have been dug up and or or just replayed. And a lot of them are him like like mic'd up, either like yelling at an umpire or yelling at his pitcher on the mound or like asking an umpire if he should bring someone in or take him out. All right, I'll take him in, you know, that that clip that we've all seen. Today, in today's world, you know, pretty much everybody's mic'd up. Do you, I just curious, like, what was he mic'd up all the time? How did we have so many great audio clips of him? Because he was buddies with Joe Garagiola. And so Garagiola would set him up. To, who else is, what other third base coaches mic'd for the game of the right, week? That, right, that, yeah, that's my point. Yeah, it's the same thing as Walter. Why did Walter Alston never appear on TV in the 1960s? Yet you see Leo DeRocher, you know, on the Munsters and the Beverly Hillbillies and shows like that. Because Alston didn't want to do it. And it was the same thing with Tommy. Tommy was buddies with Garagiola. They knew that it was good, uh, good programming. And, and so Tommy took advantage of that. Tommy wasn't always like that, but if he's mic'd up, he sure as heck is going to put on a good show. Definitely. I mean, some of the most iconic clips <laughs> of all time are Tommy mic'd up on the field. I think that's where I really fell in love with his, his passion and his style of managing and his style of coaching and why I desired someone in the mold of him for so long being a Dodgers fan. And so I'm, I'm so happy that the Dodgers finally won one with a manager who is passionate. He's not, you know, he's, he, he never like talks badly to his players or, you know, reams them out in the media or anything like that. But I just think that in, in order to have a winning mentality, you have to have that passion within you. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us for a meeting on the mound. This was so, so wonderful. And I couldn't think of anybody better to honor Tommy Lasorda than to have you on. So I'm so thankful that you uh, have joined us today. Jake, it's a pleasure to be with you. And thank you so much for the invitation and the, and the wonderful memory lane with Tommy. <laughs> As always, man. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Absolutely.